Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Listeners, I'm a tad excited to welcome this next guest to the podcast today. Having graced our television screens in the popular series Love My Way and The Slap, along with roles in worldwide smash hit Game of Thrones and a host of movies, he's an actor many Australians would be familiar with. He's well known in writing circles as a novelist, as well as an award-winning screenwriter and playwright. A multi-talented artist whose new novel, Plum, has just been published by HarperCollins Australia. I'm delighted to welcome Brendan Cowell to the podcast today. Hi, Brendan. Hello, Claudine. Thank you very much for having me here. Oh, gosh, it's such a pleasure. Wow, just reading some of your achievements and reading about them in preparation for this podcast has left me feeling a little bit tired, I have to say. But, I mean, jokes aside, you obviously have lots of fingers in different pies, metaphorically speaking. So I wanted to ask you, how do you manage to juggle all your different interests and produce an incredible work like Plum? Oh, look, I'm, I'm also, look, I have done a lot, but I reckon I've been doing it since I was 14, 15, and I'm 45 now. So just have a look at all that stuff over 30 years. I haven't been that busy, really. I mean, I'm sure there's people that have done more than I have uh, with their lives. I'm, I'm, I'm a kind of very prolific, lazy person. I like relaxing, but I seem to kind of at the same time generate a lot of work and mostly because I love it, you know, and that's probably one of the, um, you know, the greatest gifts of my life is ever since I was kind of eight years old, there was no question um, as to what I'd be doing, which was telling stories and making people laugh and and cry, it seems. Uh, so, but yeah, last year, I don't know if you've heard about this whole pandemic situation. It's very much affected the world. But last year in London, we were kind of trapped in there for, for four or five months. And I was working on this. It, it was originally called Impact Player. And it was kind of a TV idea about a footy player that got into the poetry scene. And it was kind of going to be a little light comedy about that, about how he was kind of moonlighting as a poet. And and when the pandemic hit and we were locked in in London, a friend of mine said, it's a book, you know, it's literary, it's words, and you're good with the words. That's the best part of your writing is the words. So that's what happened. Brennan, this was such an eye-opening and raw novel on so many levels, a book that gives readers insight into brain injuries in players of full contact sports like rugby league, so timely and so very topical. So I wanted to ask what or who inspired you to write Peter, the Plum Lum story? Where did the idea for the novel originate? <laughs> well, it, it was kind of that. Like I, I was at a point, I've been shooting Avatar in New Zealand. I'd had a few bad experiences as a writer in television and I was just at a funny little kind of fork in the road with with my writing because I am a writer and I wanted to write something, but I didn't want to write it just for money or just for the sake of it. And and so I got back to why I was a writer and, and that was poetry and throwing words together and making them sound and feel and musical. And, and there was something about that that I thought I want to get back to what I love about language, which is words in an order and the effect they can have when they're spoken out loud. Uh, and then I, I posed a question because I think every novel has a great question inside it. And, you know, how it feels was very much about why did these beautiful boys not make it out of their youth? You know, and I wanted to, I didn't know the answer. 
And with Plum, you know, it's like, who's the last person to be rescued by poetry? Um, and I thought of a footy player, a thug, a brute. And the issue of concussion was just starting to ruminate around rugby league, rugby union, AFL, soccer. And I was reading a bit about it. I was, and cause you know, I was concerned for players like Boyd Cordner. And, and then I thought, what about this busted footy player who has an incident? you know, an epileptic fit. And my friend, Andrew Johns had had similar seizures. And so he was very generous in, in the research process. And that's when it went, yeah, his mind's open because his mind's busted open. Now, I understand that you're a league fan and in particular an avid supporter of the Cronulla Sharks, for whom Pete was a lot yeah. forward in this book. Your passion for the game shines through Pete's character. Was this something you consciously wanted to explore when you decided to write this book? I very much played to my strengths with this book, didn't I? Yeah. And you know, you can tell, I think, when people are writing about stuff that they love. Um, and I'm writing about my two loves here. And so I found myself crying with joy and crying with sadness. And I loved writing it. And I thought, and that's why why I wrote it. I wanted to love writing again. I wanted to dig up a story and play to my strengths and that's why the language source and you know the Australian vernacular is very much alive because th this that's my uncle that's my best mate from Cronulla that's the pub I learned how to get pissed at that's the coach I had that's the street where I go on Boxing Jay to to Ben Cody's house Kernel Road this is my heart and soul and you know as a young man I'm still there's a still a part of me that's still there um, and I guess I kind of find him when I write novels. Yeah, I just thought, God, well, I'm not going to make him play for any other club. He's got to be a shark. And also it really worked with the fact that you are a god and a hero in Cronulla if you play for the Sharks and and the fact that he's trying to be anonymous because um, he's so scared at this time of his life. And in Cronulla, if you're a shark, that it's everyone stops and just points and goes, you know, there goes Paul Gall and there goes Gavin Miller, there goes David Hatch, there goes Jonathan Docking, you know, so... It suddenly, suddenly started to work and in this heavenly setting, you know, something's festering beneath the surface. Brendan, for those who haven't read it yet, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about the story. Uh, the story takes place uh, a few years ago. It's a pre-COVID story. Um, and Peter the Plum Lum is a 49-year-old ex-football player who now works at the airport. He drags planes out onto the tarmac, which is what my uncle did, what Ian Roberts did when he finished his football career. And it's a very perfunctory job, and that's how he likes it. It's physical. It's A to B to C. It's Groundhog Day. The boys love footy. In the morning, he wakes up. He has his soft sand jog with Brick Wall, his best mate. Then he goes and he chugs planes out on the tarmac, and then he goes to the pub, and he has four to 15 beers with his mates and puts puts bets on. Then he goes home and, he's, and his girlfriend, Charmaine, is getting into nutrition. She, she'll cook up a new salad. And his son, Gavin, who's 16 and looking to follow in his footsteps, will turn up with his girlfriend, Ainsley, a very athletic young couple. Um, but one day on the tarmac, he has an epileptic fit. He nearly drags a plane into another plane and kills 400 people, nearly. Mm. This causes him to um, discover he has a degenerative brain injury and he just had an epileptic fit. Dementia, CTE start to get mentioned as possibilities. The one thing he can do to combat it is to change his life. And this is a man who's been told never take a backward step by his father and he never has. He charges through brick walls on and off the field. He drinks harder, punches harder, 
goes harder and all of a sudden he's got to pause and go, I might die here. Um, so that kind of uh, opens up a possibility of change. And, you know, without giving too much away, he gets involved at a pub and there's a poetry night and he has some visitations by certain poets, be they alive or dead. And, and he starts to also, you know, when you're not shut off, you start to become friends with the misfits of society, people that he would have looked past because they're not his meathead, white, footy, beer-drinking mates. And he starts to collect some oddball friends who, who have things to tell him. Um, and Peter the Plum Lum evolves. There are so many themes and issues to unpack from this story, I felt, Brenda. But in the first place, Pete's CTE, put simply, the repeated knocks uh, to the head or concussions that many football players suffer on the field. Something that was explored in the 2015 movie Concussion in the context of, of American NFL players and brain trauma. So I wanted to ask you, do you think that there needs to be more work done to raise awareness of the risks surrounding head injuries on the foot, on the footy field and the way that these are managed? Yeah, I thought last year with Peter Volandis, um, the king, uh, now looking after the NRL with great diligence and aggression, this, last year was something we've never seen in the NRL, which was change. Mm. You know, we've always been stuck in the 1950s and the she'll be right, don't worry about it. But there was an update in rugby league in the last two years because of Peter Volandis. And you saw really, really respectable clubs, especially the, like the Sydney Roosters, mm. who, you know, medically retired a couple of players. And they probably could have kept a couple of their players on. They might have gone further into the finals. Mm. But um, Jake Friend, Luke Luke Keary, um, Boyd Cordner, you know, they didn't play because of their heads. Ryan Pappenhausen from the Storm. Uh, all of a sudden, head contact was out. The, the rule faded later on in the year, but they had a big crackdown on you hit a bloke in the head, you're off. So, look, it's always going to be more than a contact sport, rugby league. It's a, it's a collision sport. It's a collision sport. But the discoveries have been that it's not so much the big car crash hits that we see between 220-kilo front rowers. It's these little jolts at training. It's just these, these little impacts that cause your brain to hit against the jar. You know, a your brain is a plum in a jar. And, you know, so there is, as James Graham said, I knew and I played anyway, you know, and, and they play with the risks. All we can do is get more information, which is changing all the time and put the conversation out there and make sure rugby league comes second. It has to come second. Winning has to come second to will this player remember his kid's name on his kid's fifth birthday? Yeah. Because the stories out there are really, really disturbing and people are not finding out about them. So the conversation has to be there and the players have to be protected first because who gives a shit about who won the game when this bloke has got permanent damage? There is a way to play it, I believe, and it's got something to do with the way that we played in the late 90s and some of the ways that we're playing now. Um, there is a safe way to play. You can still hit blokes hard, but stay away from this delicate organ. What research did you do to bring Pete's condition to the page? Because you really put us in his mindset and the kinds of mm -hmm. symptoms he was experiencing. So tell me how you brought that to the page. Yeah, well, there were so many magical things with this book that started to come towards me as soon as I started writing it. It was one of those gifts of an experience that I knew I was onto something. I knew the gods wanted me to write this, you know, and even with discovering Emmy, Emily Dickinson was epileptic, you know, and yeah. 
just things that just came into this book that I went, holy shit, this is fantastic. Mm. And sometimes you've got to work so hard to find them. Um, but with Plum, it was like, this book wants to be written. But I found a bloke called Chris Levi, who Andrew Johns has worked with. Um, he's a neuroscientist and he runs Sphere Australia, where he kind of, he's a lead researcher and he gives research money out to, you know, strokes, dementia, epilepsy. Um, and he's dealt with a lot of sportsmen and women. And I had a numerous uh, phone calls with Chris and he gave me large amounts of very dense reading that I tried to plow through. And in the end, I called him up and we mocked up scenarios where I would play plum and I would go in and I would have my first analysis with him and he would do the one hour kind of initial check-in with his patient and I would play plum and I would record it so that everything in this book is authentic because you don't mess around when you're dealing with an issue this sensitive. So in Pete, I think readers find a man who dedicated himself to his sport, an elite athlete who was revered by the football-loving public, a living legend, if you will. And a number of times in the book he says that league gave him everything and he wanted nothing more than, than to see his son Gavin follow in his footsteps. And he said this despite what was happening to him. So do you think that knowing what might happen could have changed Pete's view? Knowing what might happen and the dangers of the game. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it, it was such a different time when he played. Toughness was equated by if you got knocked out on field and you played on. If you broke your leg on field and you played on, if you broke your jaw on field, you played on, then you went and had 10 schooners and you never complained. That was what toughness meant. And these days, and this is very much what I'm trying to suggest in a novel called Plum, is that maybe the new idea of bravery is saying, I'm depressed, I'm confused, I'm a bit suicidal, I've had suicidal ideations, I can't stop drinking. I have this pain in my back that won't go away. I think my wife's going to leave me. I, I had an affair with a girl across the road. I feel like my son hates me. Any of the above, calling, reaching out, admitting it. Admitting, yes, you're a strong physical man, but we're all weak and insecure inside, so reveal it. Because if you don't, it'll bubble away and it'll kill you. And this is kind of what Peter Lum discovers is a new notion of toughness is about writing something down and maybe performing it, you know, <laughs> like, and symbolic or literal as that is, it's get it out, men, get it out. And, you know, and how it feels, it's like talk, men. In Plum, I'm like, if you can't talk, men, write, men, you know, do something private if it's too embarrassing. Because I tell you, even writing stuff down, write a little poem, write a letter to someone and don't send it, you know, because maybe guys will never be able to stand and talk about their feelings. I don't know. But that doesn't mean they stay locked in. There are other ways to do it. Um, but, yeah, it's the question of toughness now, I think, needs to involve being a physical warrior on the field, but also being able to acquiesce and get on your son's height and ask your son how he's feeling, taking other people's issues on, being able to be in a room with a woman who's also strong and not have to sexualize her, but listen to her and be curious. And all these things that Plum learns, because Plum doesn't have any female friends, yeah. you know, but by the end of the book, I think he's got five. 
and that's part of it. We've talked a little bit about poetry already, but, you know, certainly for me, one of the more poignant parts of this novel was the visits Pete enjoys from dead poets like Charles Bukowski and Walt Whitman and Sylvia Plath. And through his unusual encounters with these characters, along with these newfound non-football friends, as you said before, he finds his voice and himself in many ways. He finds out what's important to him and, and what isn't. And I've spoken before on this podcast about the popularity of slam poetry in recent times, and Pete becomes quite adept at writing his own. Is slam poetry something that you've dabbled in yourself oh absolutely and this book comes out of that it, this book is a homage um it is gratitude in a novel towards beat poetry i mean i when i was 12 i wrote my first poem or maybe 10 uh, called staring at puddles and i went and performed it in front of mum and nan i've still got it um, and then I started writing poems about the school principal and you know about love and lust and about you know, and when I went to university, I, I, I had poetry nights. And then when I came out, Tug Dumley was running this night in Glebe at the Friend in Hand pub uh, called Word of Mouth. And I won the slam there a few times uh, where you get a bottle of Poets Corner. And, and then I ended up performing for an hour. I did a set for an hour and I, I packed I packed the joint out. Um, and from then on in, I've performed my poetry dinner parties, pubs, wherever anyone will let me, I'll do a poem. I did this Poems for Paws night a couple of years ago for the bushfires and raised $15,000, got everyone. I hate listening to people read poems. I love listening to someone read their own poem. You know, there's nothing worse than someone getting up and doing a T.S. Eliot or like, shut up. But I love hearing anybody, shit or brilliant poet reading out their own poem and it's the most beautiful window into their vulnerability even if it's a roses are red you know it's just so great seeing a human being read a poem at a wedding at a funeral in a pub at a birthday i think we should all write each other poems and and read them out and 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 i thought well it's pretty bonkers but what happens if australia's most brutish footy player starts reading poems out Okay, so I think it's fair to say that there have been many examples in the media in recent years about the dizzying heights that footballers can reach in terms of their notoriety, their money-making capacity and their prowess on the field. But those that fly highest often have the furthest to fall and so many do in such a spectacular fashion. Do you think, Brendan, and this might be a difficult line for you to walk, that as a society we're guilty of putting football players on a pedestal and making it difficult for them to live normal lives once they leave the field? Yeah, I mean... I think footy players, they get a little confused when they leave the footy world. Um, and that's multifaceted. One is, if you're a good footy player, you kind of start to get looked at around the age of seven or eight, mm. you know, and by under 10s, 12s, you're in a rep situation and people revere you and they're hoping that you play four sharks or four manly. Um, and go into the feeder clubs and you're in the camps and there's already ex-players looking at you. And and at that point in your life, mum's making your lunch, mum's driving you there, dad's training the afternoons, you're getting your gear given to you. So that starts at seven or eight. And then you go straight into semi-professional, then professional. So from the age of seven or eight to 28, 34, you've probably never been to the post office or made your own lunch. You probably don't know what your bank account is because your bank account's taken care of you. They found you a place to live with another footy player or your girlfriend and your life gets <laughs> getting looked after. So when they come out at 34, 
it's not they're stupid. Most of them not. The opposite is stupid. They're gentle. They're clever. They don't know really what's happening because at training, you get fed, you get, you have a shower, you put your clothes on, then you go back out, you do ball work, you have a shower, you get fed, you go home, you play video games. So they're protected from society in a bubble. They they breathe different air. And women do love them because of their bodies and they're famous. And kids do go, you know, you are a god. And we don't know, it's so easy to criticise, but you don't know what that's like mm. when, you know, people can, you know, throw stones at the behaviour, but until you know what that feels like to be higher than the normal person. But I just wish that they were given more of a sense of the reality that is coming because I think there's a huge drop-off after the game stops and you see the Jonathan Thurston's, Cameron Smith's, Andrew Johns, Fatty Vortons go into the commentary box and you go, oh, the footy players do all right. That's four guys from 300 guys that retired last year, plus the injuries, plus the failures. And where do they go? And who's looking after them? And there's men, men's, uh, men of league and there's things like that. But I wish that there was something more inbuilt for after footy. And that's where Pete's got to now. His kid's a teenager. He doesn't know what to do with his body. Does he balloon and hit the piss and gamble? Or does he have a second crack at life? And uh, I think they are gods, the same as artists are gods. And that's why I found that the book really worked because Sylvia Plath, Charles Bukowski, they've, you know, and as an actor, I know what it's like when everyone, like you're on a roll and you're a bit famous and then you don't work for 18 months mm. and you just, you know, and the fame drops off or you you do a real shit movie or a shit show and everyone's going, oh, that was, oh, God. Or you have a public breakup or whatever it is. So there were similarities in it. But, yeah, I wish they there was a reality built into the process, I think, for footy players. Yeah, I often think, well, my husband often says, you know, having grown up, you know, as a league player himself, back in the day, talking 70s or 80s, you know, most rugby league players had a normal everyday job while they were playing. And it kind of grounded them a yeah. little bit more than, say, what's happening now. Well, yeah, you used to see them run out onto the field and it'd be like Greg Pierce, butcher. And it'd be like Daniel Phillips, constable at Miranda Police. Yeah. You know, Leon Johnson, carpenter. And they would train and then they'd go and work a shift. And that was the working class part of it. But now it's, it's very different now. And I think we need to adapt to that. Like it's a new game and, we'll, and move into the future like NBA or something. Like it's okay, it's changing. So let's talk about Cronulla. We talked a little bit about it before, but the events of this book, as you said, are set in the southern Sydney suburb, in the Shire, as we Sydney siders say. And in many ways I would say that this book is an ode to that suburb. Um, the streets, yeah. the beach, Shark Park, the home ground for Cronulla's own rugby league team. How important to you was it to set the book in the suburb? Oh, it wasn't the first thought and... You know, he, he's originally from the country um, and but it just kind of ended up, you know, one of those very familiar stories where there's a move to the Shire and then you never leave, which is what happens to lots of families. But how it feels was set there. And I think my third book, I don't know, they might they might be from there. Um, so maybe I'll do a Sharks trilogy and, and a Cronulla trilogy and then that'll be it, you know. But you could swap this with Manly and one of those coastal peninsulas where everything's okay but the footy team better win um and and it's very insular you know that i always say that the sutherland shire got to 1956 and press pause 
and just went, this is great. Let's just leave it at this. Uh, let's leave our thinking, our salads, our fashions, God, um, let's just stop. You know, men work, women stay home. And that's where the show, I kind of liked it. But I don't know, I think, you know, I, this book's talking a lot about changing and the pain inside and, and dads and sons in relationships. And I feel like, you know, there's a little boy in both of these books that I still feel for me is still there, you know, and I love returning to those streets when I write. It just gives me such a close contact to the narrative um, because I'm kind of writing about myself in a lot of ways and my own childhood. Yeah, fabulous. Brendan, Plum is your second novel, though, as mentioned earlier, you've written for the screen and for the stage as well. How different is writing long-form fiction uh, to writing scripts for TV and the stage? Do you think your script writing helps with your novel writing and vice versa? Or are they just different? I don't know. I, I, I feel like it, it's the same. You've got a story. You've got to make the audience understand, care, and go with you. Maybe they don't care about the characters, but they care about the problem. Mm. Um, and it's, you know beginning middle and end you know and and all that stuff but why i think i'm you know a lot of people can write screenplays that aren't writers uh because they have a great eye for structure and especially movies movies are told through a rectangular camera um and the camera can tell you so much uh whereas the novel gives you a great opportunity to get inside the brain of someone and in a book like this it really helps even though this is written in third person but I love the opportunity you know to get into the banal to get into the epicness of the smallness of a lot of life um, which film would struggle to do you know and there's bits where Peter Lum's lying in the water for 20 minutes or he's on the roof cleaning the tiles and that 10 minute scene's going to be really really boring on film Whereas in the novel, it's like Peter Lum's falling in love with his brain and he's wondering what other men think and what are you meant to think as a man? What do other men think about, you know? Um, and he starts to realise that he battered his brain his whole life and now he wants to rescue it, you know, forever. He falls in love with his brain. And that's a great scene in a novel, but in a, in a screenplay, it's like, a, you know, a massive dude lies in the water. And uh, so it's not that epic. So you have to move things for Cameron. I think I'm better in this sense because I'm not the most visual person. And I think what I'm great at is the words. And I'm and I'm good at giving everyday Australian people um, a kind of a beautiful, really, really vivid, really ripe landscape, you know. And, and, and that's why I kind of, I really like I really liked writing this book and I think it was something that I really wanted to do for myself and, and for Australia in the way I wanted to give this book out, you know, but, and then TV, it's just a different muscle because so much is changing and you get notes all the time and you end up writing seven different shows. Cause they're like, make it more of a thriller, make that the love story. That person's now 60, who was 20, that person needs to die. And you're like, okay, you know, we've got this actor. It's going to be on at 7.30. Oh, we're sure, you know, can you hurry up? And and it's just this kind of, and it's great fun, but it's 
it's a, like a game television. So having talked about a stage and TV, I wondered, did you yeah. write this novel with a view to one day possibly seeing it on the screen? No. You know, without shit canning other novelists, I think this is a book, you know, this is a book. You've got to write a book. The thing that's happening in television now is that IP is getting made before original stories. So if you are basing something on an article in the New York Times on a news story or on a book, even if the book is not that successful, you're going to have a lot more chance of it getting made in television if it has an original format that you're adapting. For some reason, people want to know, oh, yeah. And so Plum probably stands a chance and it's got eight or nine chapters that probably could be eight hours of television, absolutely. And I'd be lying if I said there wasn't already office or interest in it. But, you know, I, I wrote this to use words and I recorded the audio book so that people that, you know, might be dyslexic or might not have time to read or in their car a lot um, or walking a lot, you know, you still get the language. And I think that would diminish a bit with a film or a TV show. Uh, depending on how much freedom the creatives would have. But, yeah, uh, look, I hope so. That'd be great. But if it's if it's a book, like how it feels, nearly got made into a TV show three times and didn't. If the same thing happens with Plum, I'll be happy, you know, because I, I, I get annoyed reading books where I'm like, this is a TV script, you know. <laughs> like, mm. write the book, get inside the inner monologue, explore the inner monologue. I'm reading... Franzen's book now and you're like how would you make that because he's you know I'm 200 pages in and nothing's happened yet you know <laughs> he's just talking about the church group still in 1972 and it's just people considering maybe doing something you know and that's what I love is stop time and get inside what it is to be human I asked that question because it just occurred to me that this is such a quintessentially Australian story and you know your use of language and the Australian vernacular in this is just sublime and I just thought it would be such a wonderful thing to see that come to life on the screen yeah yeah me too but it would definitely be its own thing you know I was thinking last night about because a friend of mine's going to see Hamilton and I was lying there last night going you know, you could make Plum sing all these parts. Like, it could be quite a good musical, this, actually, when he's like, this is a letter to my mouth. Um, <laughs> and, like, maybe Plum's a musical, you know. Never uh, it's in the hands of the gods, but if the book yeah. does well, then I'm sure something will happen, yeah. And the magic realism is really fun on screen. So are you working on something else at the moment? Yeah, I'm back in TV land. I have an original show. Uh, that Amazon have picked up and I've got another TV show based on a podcast that's, um, you know, in some sort of development. And I've got a book idea with, with Catherine, which is great, that I'm percolating. And uh, I've written a, a, a really low-budget movie um, to make with my friend because I'm always talking about just making something. So my mate and I are going to make a feature film early next year with a producer and use our friends and our friends' bars and 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 you know get back to what we used to do at uni i'm acting in a, t a tv show called the 12 too with foxtel about a jury so yeah i've been kind of luxuriating in plum and talking to wonderful people like yourself and um just running around and signing books and now i've got to get back to work 
I think. Brendan, many writers listen to this podcast. And so I wondered if you might share some of your top tips for writers out there looking to either write their novel or get it published. Gosh, I have no idea. I mean, I get I get so many rejections. I'm just so happy that Catherine Millen connected with the book at the exact time that she did it spoke to her, you know, because you can't second guess what people are going to like, you know, and, and their reactions are sometimes baffling. I think there's something about authenticity at the moment that cuts through. It used to be something good and big and noisy, but I think even if it's most simple form, I think there's so much out there at the moment. There's so much content coming at us. Mm. If you press the wrong button on Instagram, you'll get 400 three second videos. Like you're just being swamped by stuff. But what shines through is authenticity and that's your voice because every story has happened just not as you see it like and i think if you can mine down to what because you often hear people pitch a story and you go wow that's amazing that and then you read it and you're like it's not that give me that thing that hurt you give me that thing that hit you give me that thing that blew it and then you know really go for it and don't second guess i hope this will get made is this okay you know go with your voice and go big I'd say, because you can always pull it back later. And that's the thing that's going to separate a writer's work from another one is their unabashed authenticity. Yeah. Brendan, Plum was an irresistible, quintessentially Australian story that I highly recommend for listeners out there. I wish you every success with it and your future work. Thank you very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Great to be on Talking Aussie Books. I love Aussie Books and I love talking. That was great. Thanks for having me, Claudine, and um, send a big shout out to all the writers out there and, yeah, get a hold of Plum. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.